Hi there, welcome to or welcome back to the Shift Control Podcast. My name is Paul McAnallen. Thanks for joining me. Um, so this podcast is all about uh, sponsorship, sports marketing, and delighted to be able to introduce um, Jackie Fast. Um, Jackie is uh, on the board of the European Sponsorship Association, but um, I was introduced to her through her brilliant book, Pinpoint, How Challenging the Norm is the Only Route to Success in Selling Sponsorship. Um, it's very seldom you come across a book that is uh, so rich in information, so easy to read, so intuitive, so uh, refreshing and totally dedicated to sponsorship. So it's a real go to for those people who've got a for those brand managers or marketeers who've got more than a passing interest in sponsorship and how it can help um, grow brands and grow business. Um, and for those people who are working in um, as managers and custodians of, of properties, and um, for those people who are a little bit experienced and for those people who've got absolutely no idea, this is a really good starting point to help you understand how to make sponsorship work and where the value is and um, how to value your assets, how you need to sell, how you need to manage relationships, so on and so forth. Jackie had a very intense schedule for today and I'm delighted that she was able to take the half an hour that she did with me. Uh, so you'll see the we go straight into a question without any ceremony. Um, so, but we have promised that we will do another podcast when she has more time um, in towards the end of March and maybe into April. April. Uh, Jackie's website is jackiefast.com and once again, um, the book is called Pinpoint, How Challenging the Norm is the Only Route to Success in Selling Sponsorships. So I'll, uh, I'll take it away. Jackie, listen, uh, first of all, I know you're really, really busy. So thank you very much um, for joining me today. Um, I, we had sent questions back and forward, and I'm going to cut straight to the chase. On your website, you make the comment, it's a miracle when really good sponsorship comes together. Can you elaborate on that? Um yeah, I'll, I'll probably highlight on the miracle bit. I think far too often partnerships are put in place both by brands, rights holders, and agencies um, without so much foresight or the idea to how they're going to utilize the assets, what the assets are going to be used for, how we're going to measure it, all of that stuff, um, which is why it tends to become such a muddle. Now, it's really, really difficult to kind of understand where everybody's coming from if you don't ask the questions in advance. So more often than not, people join into a music festival or decide to, you know, sign up to a sports team without any serious plan um, about how that's going to shift their bottom line, which is why when there are exceptional partnerships, you know, it, it's rare. I'll be honest. It's really, really rare. There's some good work out there, but user usually like I would probably say 90% of the time, it's not exceptional. Okay, could, so could you give an example of an exceptional partnership that would be familiar? People would be familiar with. Uh, well, since we're in the UK, you know, I think O2's partnership of the England rugby is really good, um, very well thought of, out long running. They did some really different type of things, like getting their users engaged with the team through their names on the shirt, all of that kind of stuff, um, and. That was just fully integrated. But granted, with O2, they did a long-term partnership. So they had time to trial and error. They had time to kind of look at what was working and what wasn't working, change it for the year after, all of that stuff. More often than not, partnerships are not like that. Okay. Um, the, the reason we're talking is I, I stumbled across your book, Pinpoint, which is a, a brilliant strategic guide to sponsorship um, from the perspective of both the brand 
and um, the property. How did you get into sponsorship? Well, it was really by accident. I honestly did not know what sponsorship was for the majority of my career, I'd say. Um, My very first job out of university was doing sponsorship and wedding coordination at a golf resort. Um, I'd kind of come out of university very, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, thinking I was going to do something in mathematics or marketing or something. And I, you know, quite honestly, I came from a a small town and that was the, the... job going. And so I took it. And so that was kind of my first foray, foray into it. Um, and then I, I got more properly into it, although it was more on the exhibition side and B2B sponsorship with the Direct Marketing Association when I moved here in, to the UK about 15 years ago. Okay. Um, and the, the book Pinpoint, um, I think it is a brilliant um, roadmap for, for both um, for brands and Thank you. I know it's really, really good. I haven't, I haven't really come across that many books. You condense it really. It's really easy to read. It's not not simple, but it's easy to read, and you condense a lot of, um, you demystify a lot of stuff. You mentioned in the book that sponsorship is the future of business. Yes, I very much believe that. I actually just came from a breakfast meeting in which we were talking about Nutella, um, which sounds very random, but you, I don't know if anybody else has noticed Nutella has been on a huge kind of campaign recently and it's popping up everywhere and kind of weird places as well. They've done, and all of it's through partnership. So they've done a partnership with Tim Hortons. So they've got a Nutella donut at the moment, which is global. Uh, they've got product placement and some very key movies. They're doing some big marketing pushes and, uh, their main kind of activation and why it's becoming, I guess more, I don't want to say subliminally noticed, but you know, they're using partnership because it's a really cost-effective way to get cut through to your target audience. I fundamentally believe that. Um, we are going through a huge upheaval. You know, 15 years ago, we didn't get the 55,000 marketing messages that we received today. And that number continues to go up. So it's harder for marketeers to kind of go out with one concise message and reach their audience in an engaging and authentic way. Sponsorship allows you to cut through that. So as we get more marketing messages, I believe sponsorship will become more and more important. So how do you, how do you make it work if you're a rights holder? How, how do you um, bring that out to brands? How do you position yourself so that you make yourself open and amenable to that idea? Well, God, there's so many. There's so, there's so many things. So um, the pinpoint is actually... Uh, agglomeration of all of the things that I learned in my time, pretty much exclusively working with rights holders, although we worked with rights holders and then we worked on behalf of the brand. So we did have a very 360 approach to the partnerships that we were putting in place. But fundamentally, it always started with a challenge from the rights holder being unable to sell sponsorship. Um, and and maybe not, not necessarily always unable to sell sponsorship. Sometimes they would sell it successfully, but nobody would ever renew. Mm-hmm. And over the course of us kind of pitching our USP being like, we can help rights holders kind of overcome this challenge. What became really striking and quite amazing to me is that you would have so many diverse rights holders, but they had fundamentally the same problems. And the book outlines those six issues that people have. And those issues aren't based on skill. It's not based on experience. It's actually counterintuitive. It's the things that individual, as an individual, as a consumer, as a person, you think are the right approaches, but actually they're the exact opposite when you go to sell stuff. So in terms of rights holder being amenable to being open to doing partnerships in a better way, which inevitably will make them more successful, they have to take a bigger leap um, to 
be flexible and to actually throw away the rule book that they've been using for 15 years, take a chance on doing stuff that they've never done before that they thought didn't work. So, you know, you've got these, especially in sport, you've got these rights holders that have been very successful in securing brands for 15, 20, 30 years. And they've done the same approach with the same type of package and it's worked. So for them to say, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to do something different is petrifying. Um, but, you know, you are seeing a decline in sponsorship rights fees to those types of, of properties. For that reason, they are unwilling to change their viewpoint on how a sponsorship and partnership works for a brand today. Yeah, so I, I would be fairly familiar with that. Some of the work that I do here in Ireland, um, sort of rights holders think that, yeah, you know, tickets, we'll give, the, we'll give the, the brand tickets, we'll give them a little bit of prominence around the perimeter of the footballing arena and we'll give them some equivalent media value yeah and, and that's really tedious and it's probably very 1970s or 1980s and you mm -hmm. need to from my perspective i think it's all about understanding value and reciprocity and value yeah well you're 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 right and you're wrong it, not that you're wrong um when you talk about branding and all of those things and you said like 70s 80s actually it's 90s um pepsi Pe pepsi and coca-cola actually is a really really great example i can't actually remember if i included it in my book but um coca-cola is a huge um monopoly across the world and the reason why is when coca-cola kind of became huge so late 80s early 90s in their heyday um they got their brand everywhere and there this isn't actually in my, this is in my book um and you know their their thing is we like um we like your shit so please drink our shit so they branded everything now in that time you never really saw a brand. So the more you saw a brand, the more comfortable you were with purchasing it. What Pepsi discovered though, is that the product itself is worse. So it when nine times, nine times out of 10, people actually prefer the taste of Pepsi. So what they did is they went around um, mostly North America and they did the Pepsi taste test challenge and they put you know cups over cans and you drank it and you'd be like, oh, I like this one. And they're like, surprise, it's Pepsi. But what actually happened is that they left both can both hidden cups up and they'd show a coca-cola logo and a pepsi logo and what that did is actually it increased coca-cola sales <laughs> because coca-cola still had their branding and then pepsi was including their branding in their pepsi taste chest challenge which sent the the purchase price of coca-cola up so logos and badging did work and worked really really well it just doesn't work well now so and what is is that um there's, I guess there's a whole mixture of reasons for that. Customers have got greater uh, expectations or, or sort of the audience is more promiscuous. They're less, you know, they're, you said 50,000 messages they're inundated with social media messages. So do you have to be clever? Do you have to, what, what tips would you give to a property listening in on this that they could help energize their, their sponsorship? Well, you know, it's not, it's not about clever. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's about reciprocity. So in the 90s, when you gave a logo away, that gave value to a brand because that's on upswing. Now, logos don't, I, I fundamentally believe logos don't, well, maybe that's too much of a swing, but logos don't really work. Only 4% of millennials believe in advertisements. Mm -hmm. So so what, what does change their purchase behavior? How are, how are you, if you're going to bring on a partner, how are you going to help them sell more cans of Coke? How are you going to, you know, get more people through the door? And that's the part that's missing. That's the part that people don't really think about anymore. Not because that they don't want to, it's because they're too busy, because it's also more varied. 
you know, we have more options to get to consumers. There's brand ambassadors, there's PR, there's all of these amazing new channels that we can use. Um, and you need to look at what is the best route to market for that audience in the most authentic way. And when you can provide that as a rights holder to a brand, then that's great. As a brand, you really need to understand what is going to move your needle and then go find the rights holders who are willing to work with you to do that. It's not enough to say, we know that people purchase our t-shirts because brand ambassadors wear them. So let's go to a music festival and we don't get any rights. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For a point. Yeah, I, I was I, I made made it to my first basketball game um, over Christmas in um, Miami. I went to see the Miami Heat, and um, the uh, I felt almost assaulted commercially. Um, I remember um, thinking that everything was being um, endorsed and advertised, and there was a lot of clutter. And I found it very difficult. I couldn't tell you now who the key partners for the Miami Heat are. Um, that said, I only went to one game, so it's probably a longer play than just one game, you know. But is it becoming more increasingly harder for brands to to stand out within a portfolio within the property? I think it depends. Um, you know, if you look at the Olympics and you actually start really drilling down to, like, you know, <laughs> they certainly know how to cut a ride out. You know, you've got your regional, you've got your community, you've got your country, you've got your overall sponsors. Uh, and... And it's, it's not to say that those, some of those sponsors don't stand out more than others. And actually, quite frankly, some of the country sponsors are getting much more prominence than others. If you looked at the Super Bowl, and I can't remember what year it was, Coca-Cola did the Polar Bowl. Um, and they actually had a higher traction and a higher uptake on social media than the actual sponsor, Pepsi-Cola. Yeah. So that's these are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves, whether you're a brand or a rights holder, because, again, going back to your point, Paul, if it's about reciprocity, do we even understand where where the value is coming from? Because if we don't understand where to derive value from, there's no point in even starting a partnership. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, I think in a lot of uh, in a lot of uh, media sales or, or comm sales or in sponsorship, they're. You can't ignore um, the world from the brand's perspective. And similarly, the brand can't ignore the world from the perspective of the rights holder. And maybe it's that relationship, that almost symbiotic relationship that helps those long-term partnerships flourish like O2 and, and the rugby, you know? Yeah, agreed. Totally agree with that. Yeah, um, is, it, is there something that um, would, would stand out as, as advice to a brand? What would you say to a brand if you were giving them advice? Um, honestly, with a brand, yeah, well, I work with a couple of brands exclusively, kind of on a consulting basis. And I love, I love, I don't want to say I hate, I love and hate working with brands. Brands are so great because they've got people and they've got energy and they've got ideas, but they can't move. So, um, so it's really, really difficult to kind of make something happen with a brand. Um, and being flexible is, is difficult when you're coming from a brand, but I think brands have so much more to offer than, than just cash. Yeah. And I think that if you had, you know, honestly, if I worked, if I worked in house and I wasn't a consultant, if I worked in house for a brand, I would probably start with a zero budget. Um, and take and then only incrementally increase because as a brand you're the person that it can help the rights holder so you know what is a rights holder after they're always after money but they're after money because they want to sell more tickets they want to market it better they want to have better like a better website all that stuff all of those skill sets and all of that reach and network brands have yeah so rather than just giving them money to do something that you can provide for free 
why is there a transaction? When, when I was working in, in London, um, working with some, um, we had the business that I worked with was similar to your business model where you had a 360 view working with properties on one side and then working with brands to help manage properties on the other. Um, and it, it was really, uh, well, how can I frame the question? Um, it, it's, it was hard sometimes to get past the, the, the personal perspective. You know, you had to like the sport or you didn't have to like the sport, but I think if it's a real marketing decision, how you feel about the sport or the property doesn't really matter. I have found that my best work has done has been done from like a truly objective viewpoint. In all fairness, actually, the stuff that I really like is like wine and food. And unfortunately, I've never been able to work with a wine or food property. Um, but you know, when you when you work not subjectively, but when you're a fan of the team or the music festival or the celebrity that you work for, you start using phrases like, oh, but it's the Chelsea football team. Or, oh, but, well, she's Kim Kardashian. And those are not actual business answers to any kind of question like, how are you going to help my bottom line? Why are you selling selling it, this sponsorship deal to me. And yet you'll find fans of whatever they're working for say those things. And that's an issue. I remember um, we had Manchester United on our portfolio and all of my buddies in the industry would be very envious and they thought it would be so easy to get a title sponsor for <laughs> no. a global brand. And, you you know, there's so many factors. There are fixed and variables, you know, your timing, um, you know, the economy, like, God, there's so many things that are outside of your control. Like, you know, what would you give, what, what advice would you give to somebody selling today? Well, I'd say buy my book, Pinpoint, on Amazon. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know what, I fundamentally, I'm not even trying to vlog it. I fundamentally, the reason I wrote the book is because, you know, we turned around something like a thousand, over a thousand rights holders. Some of them was really full scale, like, like, you know, retain clients, but some of them was literally a consulting thing, a boot camp that we did, um, a sessions training thing. The information on selling sponsorship is rare. It's slim. Um, and the stuff that is out there is fairly outdated. Now I'm not to say that's not to say that the information isn't good. It's just outdated. Now, if you are a practitioner working in the industry, you can understand the base points of it. But if you are you know, some guy in, I don't know, Hull that wants to start a music festival that has no experience kind of in marketing or sponsorship, picking up those kind of books is not going to be helpful. Reading a blog by some guy in America who's talking about, I don't know, selling anything else. It's just not helpful because it doesn't actually work and it's not practical. And there are so many blogs that say, you know, you have to tailor everything. It's, and that's not practical advice. The book Pinpoint is really the highlight of these are the six things that are, you're doing wrong. If you fix these six things, you will get a sponsor. And I know that for a fact because we've done it with over a thousand people. Um, and as part of that, I would say, you know, don't just pick up the phone. Don't just decide to create a sponsorship proposal. Like know what you're doing and just try to like accept that you have no idea what you're doing or where to start and get some information. I think so often, and it's crazy because we, we do this thing called a, um, 
I don't even know what it's called anymore. I haven't been working so long. Um, we, we kind of do a kind of background check on all of our competitors for clients. Um, and whenever we do that, we, we'll pull like 20 or 30 proposals within a, within a market. And, you know, we'll, we'll pull stuff anywhere from like, you know, TV shows in Ghana to music festivals in Austin, Texas. And the amount of proposals that we can get that are clearly some guy in his bedroom that literally has no clue anything about sponsorship is insane. Um, and even if some of those people just actually got their sponsorship proposal done by a graphic designer, they'd have a better chance. But all these people are just wasting so much time thinking that they can ask for a million pounds or even a hundred thousand pounds on a word document blows my mind. Um, and the, I guess the huge amount of people doing that is the reason why everybody says that sponsorship's so difficult. No, I, I think that I would concur. Um, I, I find the book really, really intuitive. I mean, that's because I'm, I'm genuinely interested in it and, and I have recommended the book to a lot of people that I know um, locally who are working in Gaelic football, which is sort of the, um, the Irish national sport, um, football and hurling. And, and um, it's incredibly popular here. It's probably unheard of over there. Um, relative to the other major sports but um, here it's absolutely thriving thankfully and um, some of the people involved just really are putting together word documents um, and sending out uh, a proposal with a value attached to it that's been completely just made up on the spot with no kind of um, justification or validation whatsoever and that is worrying because it sets a really bad per perception within the industry yeah completely agree um, so in, in the book, you have these six takeaways. There's one I wanted just to focus uh, in on, um, Jackie. So how do you price your, your assets? What's the best way that, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's starting out trying to price what they're trying to sell? Well, there's two ways to do it. Not two ways. Um, so you can do it the proper media way, which is typically costly and I don't think that valuable because most of it's based on how often your logos are going to see on broadcast, how the cost of that broadcast being sent. Um, I would start by benchmarking. So, you know, nothing is unique. I've never seen anything unique that can be compared to something awesome. else. And I've seen yeah. random proposals like they're going to send some adventure into deep sea in like a space thing. And I've seen space proposals and stratosphere and all that stuff. Um, you can always compare the audience, the reach and the activity with other proposals. So that should be your starting point. So for instance, if you are a, I'm just using music festival cause it's just so common. If you're a music festival, um, you know, go out to five, 10, 20 other music festivals similar to yours with the same amount of audience that you're aiming to get, find out what they're se selling their sponsorship for. Now, if you're selling your sponsorship for 300000 for a headline sponsor and all the other ones that are similar to yours are selling for fifty, that's going to be an issue. Yeah. So that's step one. Step two is it's always based on what you're giving them. So you have to look at the assets. So if you're only giving them, let's just say you're only giving them tickets and some branding on lanyards. Well, you can cost that out because there's a cost of a ticket. That's a value. Because if they didn't do the sponsorships, they could just buy those tickets straight off. In terms of the lanyard stuff, you can literally get kind of a uh, local. So hypothetically, let's just say it was in Coventry. You could find out what the advertisement is in Coventry, get a relatively cost. Uh, it's called cost per um, thousand CPM, no cost per meal. And then, you know, obviously, if you only have 15,000 people, take the CPM. Times are by 15,000 people. You can, it's relatively easy to come up with a valuation um, that isn't just putting your finger in the air. 
Yeah, a lot of um, the rights holders um, that I would work with, they put a value on it based on what they think they're worth. Yeah. And it all comes from this heritage and tradition and pedigree. Like we were really good and we we're brilliant. Therefore, in the exactly. past, we've won loads of trophies. We can get this one. Actually, you know, equivalent media value is, is kind of important. But one of the things you've mentioned in the book, and I think it's really important, is that what, what sponsorship does over traditional, other traditional comms is that, it's not about reach anymore. It's about that engagement. And if you only reach 10 people, but you engage with them really, really thoroughly and consistently over a long period of time, sponsorship does that better than anything else. And I think that's really where the value comes from in sponsorship. You can go deep and, and wide with uh, your target audience if you get it right. Absolutely. Um, and it depends on who those 10 people are. Right. Yeah. So it depends on what the brand is. So these are all the variables, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your asset is worth more. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Just and and I think a lot of this, you know, I've been asked the question, and I know there are some conflicting views about whether a brand who's taking more advantage of the sponsorship should pay more. So I fundamentally believe that's not correct or good um, because you know it is really up to the brand and the rights holder to make sure that that activation works and if it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that the assets being sold are not as valuable or more valuable no absolutely yeah you mentioned in the book as well something that i i, I really I like it resonated with me that sponsorship isn't just a marketing tactic but it becomes a strategy and a strategic priority for businesses so it is a long-term play rather than just some kind of short-term emotional gain or financial gain even. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, Jackie, listen, I'm conscious we've, we're, we're, we're probably coming up to we're about half an hour here. So um, I'm very grateful for, for your time on this. Can you tell people where they need to go and pick up this book because it's brilliant um, and how they can connect with you outside of this if they want to go and engage with you professionally beyond this? Perfect. So my book is available on Amazon, on all the Amazons with lots of reviews. I think if you just search pinpoint Jackie fast, it should come up, but it's called pinpoint how challenging the norm is the only successful route to selling sponsorship. Um, and I am, I'm on Twitter at Jackie fast and I've also got a website with um, my contact details and you can kind of submit stuff through there. If you're interested in having me speak or having me consult on anything, that's where you can reach me, which is www.jackiefast.com. Jackie, I will probably, uh, no, not probably, I will definitely put all of those notes in the podcast um, and I'll put them out in my email and I'll send it out to everyone that I can. But um, I know you're busy. Your schedule is kind of even intimidating me. So, um, <laughs> Jackie, thanks very much for coming on the show and maybe we can catch up with you again sometime in the future. But good luck with the book and good luck with everything you're working on at the minute. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It was, it was good fun. So there you have it. Um, if you want to find out more about Jackie, um, her website is JackieFast.com, G-A-C-K-I-E, Fast.com, and Twitter is at JackieFast. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining me, and I'll catch up with you again. 